Hey, Lamb. Hey, man. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, you know, <laughs> fighting through technology once again. Seems yep. like we do that every week in some weird fashion. I know. Uh, for the listeners this week, you may notice a difference in sound. Lamb and I are not in the room together anymore. We are experimenting with Skype recording for the convenience so that Lamb doesn't have to drive across town in uh, traffic to do this every week. <laughs> And uh, we just spent about, oh, half hour? 40 minutes? Yeah, probably about half hour. Yeah, easily. Testing recording volumes and microphones and all the things that neither of us know how to do. <laughs> uh, another thing we should mention before we go any further, we're not hearing it, but uh, all the listeners just heard our new theme song, which I included in the recording of last week, but uh, we didn't know that at the time that we recorded so uh, thank you to Giovanni, a.k.a. Cruels, for such a kick-ass song. Yeah, I'm shocked. Did you collaborate with him on that one? Uh, he just had me send him a couple pieces of uh, guitar, but I mean, like, all the hard work was him. Oh, yeah, sure. Like I said in the uh, description of, I think it was in the description of last week's show, I said uh, it was kind of like the crappy guitar player in the garage band on the street getting to work with Quincy Jones. <laughs> He's just a musical genius. Yeah, it's kind of sad that he's not in the Bay Area anymore. Um, outside of him being a musical genius, he was, uh, you know, one of my my golf buddies. So now I don't have uh, one of my golf buddies back in the area again. Uh, that's right. You guys are the golf buds. Yeah, he's out there playing yeah. with uh with Bo now. Yeah, Bo Roulette and a couple of other random people. Yep. So, what happened to you this week, man? Anything interesting? Um. Yeah, I, I, I ran into my dad twice, completely unannounced, which is odd, um, because I just don't picture my dad as hanging out in the same places as I do, so that was... <laughs> I'm not sure if that's better for him or worse for me. <laughs> <laughs> was it like a shock, or it just, you know, normal thing? It was a little shocking because he was... Uh, he had gone out to New York to visit my sister, and then he came back, and he came back early, so we didn't know he was back here. And then I ran into him uh, at a coffee shop and at um, the driving range. So it was kind of strange. That's random. Yeah. Oh, let's see. Well, I'm trying to think of what, it's been such a crazy week. And I don't know, I think sometimes uh, I talked about this a minute in, I think it's today's vlog. Doing the vlogging, it really makes my week surreal, man. Like, I, I have no idea what day it is. And I'm trying to remember things that I'm like, that happened yesterday? No, that happened two days ago, but I think it was yesterday because I was editing the video of it yesterday. <laughs> Time just, like, all my days bleed together now. Yeah, it's really strange because I remember uh, watching your vlog and you were talking about uh, working in the present, um, thinking a day behind because you're still, um, you know, editing and, and then looking at your footage from the day before and then releasing stuff from the day before. So, you're, you're operating in two different tenses at the same time, which is, that's got to be weird. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange thing, but I think, uh, I don't know, like I said it in there as well, I, I think I like it. Um, something about it, it's a, it's a weird thing to say, but it, it almost makes me more present because I can't focus on the past or all the, uh, the other stuff in the same way. So it all becomes the past and the present mixed together. So I kind of feel like I'm more in the now. 
Do you find yourself remembering things better because you have to relive them so many times? No, I don't remember anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's there's a that's the reverse effect of that of what we're having. Yeah, that's that's strange. Yeah, it becomes a weird like loop. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like I think what happens is I try to remember something. And then because I can't place it to a specific day, it just ends up like spinning out and then I just end up not remembering. Oh, geez. What about the stuff you do on a daily basis? Does it change? Does does having a, a camera constantly on you and filming everything that you do change the way you do things? No, not at all. I mean, it's not always on me, obviously. Like I'm very – the one thing about doing a vlog as opposed to I think not – I don't know because I've never done it, but being in a reality TV show or having a camera crew follow you for a documentary, I'm in control of what's included and what's captured and what's not. Uh, so that doesn't really change anything. But I do think that because of the change in temporality, <laughs> I have rely on uh, paper and apps a lot more to remember, you know, like, oh, I need to do this today. Oh, that's today. Okay. Thank you for reminding me to do it. <laughs> yeah, but do you is that a is that a dual edge thing though? Like, I mean, it, when you plan your tasks for the day, for example, like I was always kind of I was kind of curious about this while I was watching your vlog. Like, do you plan tasks with the intention of having purposeful things to film, or do you just literally take a day in the life of? Uh, it depends on the day. I mean, there's no consistency in general. Uh, some days I know if I know something's going to happen, I will wait to record you know like i won't worry about finding something to record or talk about for example you know like the day that you came over last week to record the podcast i didn't really record anything before you came over so i'm like lamb is the vlog today and uh but then other days i just fall into things i mean like i recorded basically a, a vlog and a half the other day because i was halfway through something and then john came over and i went on an adventure with him so i'm like oh here's a whole vlog just of that yeah, it's the Home Depot adventure, right? Yeah. I end up with so many pieces of things that I don't even get to use because you don't know what happens until you edit. Editing your life. <laughs> how how has that affected? Like, because I know you're a pretty heavy journal uh, journaler, uh, journaler, journal person. Uh, so <laughs> I, I have no idea what that word actually is. but I feel like journaler I mean, would be right, but it feels weird. Yeah, it feels weird. It doesn't it doesn't roll off the tongue properly. But do you, do you find that that affects how much you journal or how you journal? I feel like before, I kind of fell off of the journaling in the sense of like putting down my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, the most of the journaling I do now is more commonplace book stuff, right. where I write down you know what I'm watching, if I have any thoughts about what I'm watching or what I'm reading. Um, that's still the same. What I have noticed though is it makes Social media almost irrelevant because sure. I was like I have very little to express there that I'm not already expressing. So finding a place for those things other than you know posting links to the stuff I'm doing is hard and trying not to bore people, especially Snapchat because I mean the whole way I ended up in this vlogging thing was screwing around with Snapchat and I was essentially vlogging on Snapchat. Mm-hmm. So now I don't know what the hell to do on there. Oh, well, that's true. I mean, you basically have three forms of, of immediate media that you're publishing to the world. Like, pretty, I mean, the vlog you publish every single day, which I'm still astounded by. But, I mean, the, your vlogs are between, you know, five and ten minutes every day. How do you come up with enough material to throw in there? Well, uh, sometimes I'm not sure. 
<laughs> it's it's a struggle every day, but and I think that's part of the adventure. You know, I think sometimes I overthink it, and I realize I'm like, why do I have to worry about that? And just point the camera and talk and figure it out afterwards. I mean, I believe it or not, you know, like when I get to the end of the day, usually I'll drop everything into Premiere, and it's like usually about 38 clips. Yeah. And then just when you shave everything down, you're like, and here's five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Well, I mean, it's funny because um, the the vlogs feels very much like, I, in, in a roundabout kind of way, it feels very much like um, what your main character or, or one of the versions of your main character in the novel that you're writing would do. Like, it, it feels Charlie-ish in its sensibility. You know what I mean? Right. So so I, I kind of feel like there's there's... Not even a loose tie, but a pretty direct tie to to how Charlie works in your brain versus how your brain is using vlogging as a way to catalog itself. You know what I mean? I think the strange thing about that book is I started that book with the idea of creating a character who had nothing to do with me. And then over the past few (laughs) years, he slowly changed me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't know. Like, here's, here's a question for you. So photography, right? Yeah. And Instagram. I think in a way there's a correlation between what we're talking about with, you know, like my journaling, writing, and then vlogging, another outlet, you know, but it's a very public outlet, something that you're doing on a regular basis. When you started using Instagram to share photography, how did that change your photography or how did it view the purposes you took things and the devices you used? Well, it's it's weird because you know at the very beginning it's some something that we touched on in in, in the pre- one of the previous podcasts. Um, you know, at first it was just a way for me to display my my artwork or my photography, um, and then eventually it became um, you know me purposefully looking for cool images to take in order to um, you know fulfill some sort of need for social validation. Um, and now I think I've gone the complete opposite direction where now I'm barely displaying anything, um, especially on Instagram. So it's tough because there's a part of me that, that feels like I'm now disconnected from, from my photography as well as from, from the people in my life because I don't use Instagram that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's weird how it's come full circle in that sense. I feel more isolated now than I ever have before. Um, and the irony of that is when, I was using Instagram um, for photography. I felt connected, but I wasn't really connected. So there's kind of a weird, there's a kind of a weird dichotomy there. Like it ultimately, they both kind of feel the same, but they both kind of feel the same for completely different reasons. Is there a reason that you specifically stopped using it as much? Yeah, um, it was just a lot of upkeep um, in the sense that, and, and which is both good and bad for an artist. Like it, I felt like I was, I, I constantly had to to replenish the images. Um, but the problem with that is it, it, I'm, it, it made me feel like I was just doing it for the sake of doing it versus doing something that was actually creative or interesting. So, so it kind of felt like every single day I had a deadline and I had to meet that deadline. And I guess that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but part of the reason why photography means what it means to me is because I want to do it when I want to do it and not because I have to do it. You know what I mean? Right. I think that that's a, a important delineation there. Like, for example, like the vlog, I don't worry about that because I don't view what I'm doing as for vlogging. I don't view it as art. Yeah. So there's no um, – so the deadline's fine for me. That pressure is a good thing for me. It keeps me productive. It keeps me uh, keeps me creating. But it's, um, it's not encroaching upon some kind of uh, artistic sensibility. 
Whereas, like, uh, I felt a similar thing with, with um, trying to sell art online. After I tried, you know, getting the process where I'm like, oh, I need, I need more followers and I need to make more sales. And it just started making me not want to draw. Sure. So I, I get you on that for sure. I, I do think that that public sensibility can, at least for you and I, um, diminish that drive. What about the personal sensibilities? Though? I mean, uh, the, the, the personal deadlines. Like, I know that when you were writing Charlie, you used to give yourself, um, you know, deadlines to achieve certain things within either the story itself or, or, or the outlines. But there was also, you've also, you know, published a couple of uh, books of poetry. And I mean, when, when it comes to publishing a book, for example, like, how strictly do you enforce deadlines for yourself? And how do you define that process in order to, to you know, make sure that you're fulfilling fulfilling those obligations to yourself in order to, to, to create something? Um, well, I feel like the novel novel and a, uh, and poetry, a book of poetry, are very different beasts, at least for me. Um, particularly the main poetry book, uh, Rectile Dysfunction, that was very Bukowski-style-driven. It's very brutal- um, in its verbiage, you know, there's not a lot of uh, perfecting of the phrases. Uh, I mean, there is behind, but it doesn't come across that way. It's it's a very simple, um, aggressive form of poetry, I would say. And so for that, I relied on impulse. I'd sit down to write something, and if it didn't come out pretty much in a solid chunk... yeah. I mean, I, after, obviously afterwards I would edit and, you know, make sure I got the right word here and there. But if the piece as itself didn't come out in one chunk, then I would, I'd throw away whatever I was working on. I had one, one particular piece and I was spending like an hour and I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This is not how this book works. So I threw that piece away. Whereas with the novel, it's just a matter of, I have to set deadlines to, get things done because I can't do it all in one chunk. I can't run on that same drive. Sure. So so I find myself, actually, this gives me a, a good opportunity to bring in a uh, new application that I, that I discovered for my phone into the discussion. By the way, um, people really enjoyed some of the technology talk that we did, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying this new app. It's called Strides. And it's it's a habit tracker. Um, for a while, I was tracking habits within my Todoist, which is my main task management app, and that's just not um, it's not the right tool for that. Is when you when you track habits, obviously there's there's there needs to be flexibility for not doing it with a task manager. If you don't, if I put write for one hour on Monday and I don't get it done on Monday, then it's still there on Tuesday. And the moment I complete that, then it'll make me, you know, it'll say, oh, now you need to do Tuesdays. And that's just, it's not the right tool. So this this is more something where I can say, for example, um, I'm looking at it right now. I have the reminder to try, to try to drink eight glasses of water a day. So whatever I get to at the end, that's how many I drank for the day. It doesn't, you know, I don't get need to get to eight to complete it. Um specifically to write Charlie at this point with the amount of work that I'm doing on all this other stuff, including this podcast, 
I have write Charlie three times a week. I try to get, and if I can get to myself back to the schedule of at least writing him three times a week, the next step would be to bump that up to four, then to five. And then, of course, I've added in here, you know, awesome things that we all need in our lives, like meditate, read, and remember to floss. <laughs> because I hate flossing, but I need to do it all the time. Yeah, I feel you on the same way. I floss maybe twice a week. I mean, Crystal is so diligent about flossing. It's terrifying. She she flosses at least twice a day. It's it's unbelievable. She probably has perfect teeth. Oh, her teeth are immaculate. It's ridiculous. I mean, when you know, if there's if there's some kind of crazy nuclear apocalypse, like it, it's going to be cockroaches in her teeth, basically. <laughs> unbelievable. That's that's actually that's the that's the state that I want to be in. My problem is, um, <laughs> I have a, this is strange to say. I have a very small mouth. Uh, <laughs> Something with my, I'm a loud person, but uh, my jaw does not open very wide. Like, I have like a less than two inch clearance between my teeth. Oh, I think, I think you told me about this at some point. Yeah, I've never seen you open your mouth really big. I can't. Not like I'm looking at your mouth to watch you open it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to break my jaw to do it. I mean, literally, I have like, I'm trying right now. I think it's about a one and a quarter inch clearance. Yeah. Um, so, flossing is evil for me i can't you know like you can get your fingers in there i'm like i can fit two fingers maximum in my mouth at a time Mm -hmm. uh so i've been using these uh these little pick things they're flossing picks i don't know what the hell they're called because i don't have the package here but they're they look like uh, little pine trees (laughs) oh yeah i've seen those actually i used to use those those are those have been a lot of help because i can get those into places that i could not get normal floss so that has made getting uh, that job done easier. I avoid it less now. There were trying, man. I, I don't know. I haven't talked to the dentist to find out if they work as well, but I figure it can't hurt. I also have a water pick that I play around with every once in a while. Yeah, that thing's more entertaining than it did is useful, though. Like, I, I, <laughs> I, I like to spray things from distance just to see if I can <laughs> over. That's basically it. I feel like I can never get it... Uh, lined up on the gum right to where yeah, i'm like yeah. it's nailing the, the spot that it should be nailing yeah <laughs> but just to go back on some of the technology stuff too I, I mean it's now the third podcast in a row that we've talked about hound and i feel like our, mm. con- our, our conversation about hound evolves as the podcast does um <laughs> I, had a, I had a chance to use hound um over the course of last week and i will tell you it is one of the most incredible apps i've ever used in my life it's mind blowing isn't it it's unbelievable I, I and just to mess with it i would do you know just crazy unrelated strings um of of questions and then i would i would ask a follow up a couple of minutes later to one of the questions that was in the string and it was smart enough to figure out what the heck i was talking about it's unbelievable i i still am shocked at how they do it I'm shocked that uh, Apple hasn't been throwing billions of dollars at them to inject that into Siri. Because, honestly, Siri really is lacking in comprehension. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the guys at Back to Work um, were talking about this, too, is that I think the next step in, in, in a lot of this technology is, is it, and we talk about context a lot for a lot of different things, but I think that, that having these apps, like these dictation apps or these personal assistant apps, understand context uh once they can do that then it's a whole different ball game and i i I think that that personal assistance on phones can become 
um, so much more useful. Um, like even the, the using Siri to make a checklist, for example, like, I mean, that's something I just recently discovered how to do and, and, and like a check markable checklist. And that's one of the coolest things that I've ever figured out on my phone. I know it sounds really rudimentary and really simple, but I mean, in, in previous incarnations, it's like the first conversation we had about this stuff. If I have to open two folders and two apps and mm-hmm. change three settings to do something, I'm just going to write it on a piece of paper. You know, what right? I mean? I mean, that's what I do. Yeah, and then I log this stuff later. I think that that's the one uh, obstacle to Hound is you have to open Hound. Yeah, yeah. And I, there's, I, I ended up deleting it just because I'm like, this is really cool and it's awesome, but I'm just not going to use it. Sure. I don't, I don't look for that kind of information. And I think we're all, well, I shouldn't say we're all, I think I am trained to do things via typing. So it takes a lot of training to get me mm-hmm. to remember that I can just ask something. Like I have the Google search app in my doc and I type it in. I still never talk to it. Yeah. Like ever. <laughs> well, I think, I think the only way that technology really becomes useful uh, especially for guys like you and me is if i can just talk to my phone i know that's that sounds kind of crazy but i can just say hey siri um you know i need to find a a a vegetarian restaurant in san francisco and i don't have to click on anything i don't have to touch anything i don't have to activate an app or do anything like that you know what i mean it just literally knows that i'm talking to it and i think that would be amazing like alexa like yeah like alexa except alexa you can't carry an obelisk around with you everywhere you go (laughs) um i think that that the one thing that separates all the attempts that they're making right now from the ultimate goal, which is the Star Trek computer, mm-hmm. is that conversational ability to yeah. be able to ask a question in 15 different ways and not have to use a specific formula like you have to do with Siri and also context, like you said, you know, for it to understand those things so that you can, I, at a certain point, I know that they will get that language capability up to where you can say, uh, can you find me a book about uh, the Middle East conflict prior to the English um, the English invasion of, you know, whatever? You, and then it's going through and it it's starting to give you suggestions. You go, no, no, no. Um, I want to view it from the other side, you know, to where you can use that conversation sure. to help it narrow your search results down like you would with the human. Do you think it needs to get to the point where and I don't even this is some 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 Skynet stuff we're talking about now, but. I mean, what if, what if, do you think it, it, it really needs to get to a point where it learns you well enough to understand what you're trying to say? To a certain degree, but I think um, less than people think regarding like preferences mm-hmm. and more regarding language usage. Sure, sure. You know, like um, when I say, hey, play me, you know, if I were to say something and I use the word dig, like give me something I dig. Like, it knows that I use the word dig for like, and it understands that. Those, I think those are far more important than, you know, like, he likes to eat chicken on Tuesdays because nobody is that, well, hopefully nobody's that regimented. <laughs> so, I'm yeah, not. <laughs> I mean, the, the guys over at Back to Work were mentioning stuff like, uh, you know, if, what are they called? I think they're called geofences, um, mm-hmm. a, a concept in, in these personal assistants where, or these digital assistants where it understands by both proximity, geog- geography, and time uh, what you would want to do or need to do. Um, it, it, the example that they gave was, you know, um, so John goes home from work every day at 5 o'clock, and right before he leaves his office, he needs to remember to grab his mail key. 
And so the, the, the device knows that, okay, so John's packing up, he's getting ready to go. And as he walks out the door, um, you know, the, the, the phone will remind you, hey, uh, did you remember your, your mail key? And I think something like that would be pretty remarkable. I mean, the, the, the concept of geofences is not really a new concept. Um, no, it's not just at all. Up, up until this point, I don't think the technology has just been good enough to, to get a, a tight enough bead on where you are ge- you know, geographically in order to make it useful. But I think right. we get pretty close to that. I feel like um, going back to context, I also think that um, the ultimate goal there would be to have a machine that understands that you are leaving work but that you did not grab the key. So that sure. doesn't remind you when you do have it. Sure, sure, sure. Because I imagine that, that reminder gets annoying after about the ninth day when you have your key. Right, yeah, because I've done stuff like that where it's like, um, you know, for a while uh, I would forget to write down when I leave the house because I always, um, in my journal, in my commonplace book, journal, whatever we want to call it, I, I track whatever I do as well. You know, like, oh, John and I went to Home Depot. Even though I have the vlog, I'm not going to go back to the vlog to remember what I did that day. Um, so I write those things down. So I used to have a reminder, a, a geolocation reminder in Todoist that would say, uh, write down where you're going and any time that it knew I was leaving the house. I got annoying really fast. Sure, I can imagine. And to a certain point where I'm like, I don't care. If I forget, I forget. I think it's not that important to me. Sure. Well, so we kind of went through uh, what I did over the course of last week. What the heck have you been doing other than going to Home Depot? I don't know. Hold on. Let me go watch my blog. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they've just kind of replaced your memory in that sense? And that's why you can't remember anything anymore? I, I feel Yeah, I feel like the vlogs are my short-term memory now. Wow, crazy. I'm, I'm just giving all of you my short-term memory. <laughs> that is that is slightly terrifying. I'm, I'm a stoner without the stone. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if, if you know, we're talking about like like artists. Um, you know, I wonder. I wonder if movie directors think that way. Like they, you know, they, so basically the movies operate as their long term memory because obviously for them when they're making a movie, um, there's so much that goes on in the background that's that's part of their associative memory that you know seeing someone place a bottle on a table could bring back a whole sequence of things that happened over the course of a month. You know what I mean? Right. Well, and you you also I think that. What I what I'm experiencing is probably something that they definitely experience on the set because you know they're not filming everything chronologically either, so they're keeping the chronology straight in their mind. They're remembering pieces. They're going, okay, we got to shoot this over here because this goes to this. Okay, we got to shoot this over here because that's going to this. And then oh, and then you that's that's why when people say all the time, you know, like oh, why why do they have so many continuity errors in this movie? Because that's the way they're filming things. You know, like you might not remember oh. We forgot the cigarette was at fifty percent last time we filmed. We need to burn it down to fifty percent before we start filming again. Sure. So I, I definitely think that that's something that they experience. Um, I also think it's it's uh, other than just like the short term memory thing. I also think it's just it's confusion. <laughs> sure. it's, our brain's not meant to handle that kind of temporality. Yeah, yeah. That much sensory input to that level of detail in that chronological order. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's just it's a burnout essentially. You know, the yeah, brain's just going off. It's 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 funny that it, it, because I didn't really realize how how that worked until you know I, we work with a bunch of people who 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 work in film um, and or who are just videographers. So I get to see them shoot things out of sequence, and it's it's I I don't understand how they can keep it all straight. You know what I mean? Like there there are so many things that happen out of order 
um, and you have to keep the entire narrative in your head and you, you and so many bits of the narrative are happening at different times that I'm actually shocked that there aren't more continuity errors in movies you know what I mean so I now know. I have a weird appreciation for when I see a movie um, like tonight we're going to see this really terrifying um, this, ter- this this horror movie called The Witch um, and apparently most of that was shot in sequence so I'm curious to see the difference between a movie shot in sequence and a movie shot out of sequence you know what I mean yeah I, I mean, I always, I think when I was younger, when I used to, because I used to, I spent a lot of time when I was younger, like, working on what I thought were scripts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the only reason I say that is because I never finished anything, so it's not really a script. But I spent a lot of time playing with that stuff. And uh, in my mind, it was always like, it seemed like, oh, it's so easy. Just shoot it in sequence. Just do it in order. But I do think that there's a an inherent difficulty to certain things where it's like, Sure, you could shoot it in order, but it's going to take you 50 days instead of 20. Because we have this scene already set up, so we should shoot everything that takes place in this room. And to have a brain that does that and to... I mean, obviously there's training involved. Um, is It's impressive to me. It really is. But now that um, I've gone through and done something that I didn't think was possible to do, which is cutting these and editing them or cutting them filming them and cutting them every day I do think that uh, we can all learn anything sure it's it's just a matter of whether we'll stick with it <laughs> well it's, it's one of those it's going back to last week's uh, podcast too I think that's part of the reason why we so we see so many few or so few errors in continuity when it comes to TV shows because I because they shoot them in sequence so yeah. that kind of makes sense you know with the exception of, check this out, Law and Order. Uh, it's not on the air anymore, but, well, that well, one version of it is. But they do not shoot in sequence. In fact, they shoot multiple episodes at the same time. Whoa, that's confusing. So imagine being that actor where it's like, okay, uh, God, I can't remember who was saying it. I feel like I want to say it was Mariska Hag- Haggerty. Haggerty? Haggerty? Haggerty, uh, yeah. I think it's Haggerty, yeah. Um, I feel like it was her talking about um, Special Victims Unit. But they go into, you know, one scene. They're filming, we'll say, episode 55. And they're going in. They're in a courtroom. Okay, courtroom scene. That's their scene for that show right now. Okay, cut. All right, you need to go over to set two because we're working on episode 57. And in episode 57, you're making a bust. Okay, so they gotta go over there, and now they gotta go do that scene, and then you gotta run over to the other set because now episode fifty six, which is in between the two, is filming. Now they have the set for uh, you know whatever the the station house, and and they've got to go into those scenes and you know like pull up this piece of paper and be like, okay, what is my character feeling right now, mm-hmm. and. What happened before this? Oh, I filmed that other one. That technically happened. I filmed the other one before, but that technically happens after this. So I don't know that. So I can't show that right now. Wow. Yeah. How do you reset your memory like that? That's crazy. Because, yeah, there are certain details that you just don't know um, as the character from the day before. (laughs) I feel like to some degree, I mean, obviously I don't know, but I feel like there's got to be somebody whose job it is to write down all the pertinent details for them. Like, oh, sure, sure. Here's what you need to know. By the way. You don't, your character doesn't know this yet. You know, like there's got to yeah, be somebody. You haven't, you haven't met this guy yet or you haven't gone to this place yet. Yeah. 
Yeah, because, you know, like, oh, well, you looked like your face showed that you were familiar with him. You're supposed to be surprised. Sure, sure. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's genius, though. I mean, credit to television actors. And perhaps they don't get enough credit for what they do. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, I, I I don't know why I've never thought of it until now, but, like, I'm curious as to how they shot 24. Remember that show? Yeah, but I never watched it, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I watched a couple of episodes. It's supposed to be, it, it was more gimmick than it was quality in that sense. I mean, there were some good moments in the show, but ultimately it was just one giant gimmick. Um, and, and a lot of things, were, I knew that they, you know, they must have filmed that show over a, a, a number of months, um, but all of that's supposed to happen in a 24-hour period, so. That's each season, right? Yeah, each season is a 24-hour day. So from that perspective, it's the opposite of what we, we think of when it comes to, like, movies. Because if you take, like, you know, any, any take, like, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I mean, that movie is supposed to take place over a lifetime, but it was filmed in six months. You know what I mean? Right. So it's really interesting to, to, to see how time works so differently. Um, and it's you're right. Like, I, I don't think... I don't think most of us in the, the general populace understand how difficult that might be for an actor to jump through so many periods of time and so many gaps of time so quickly and maintain the character that's appropriate for that given moment in time. You know? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's maybe even until this moment right now, I never even thought about it as much as I am. Yeah, that's crazy. Hmm. Uh, you know, I want to go back to Instagram for a second. I have a question for you. Sure. Did you hear the news? about Instagram. I did not. Instagram has announced that they will now be instituting the Facebook, or oh, not the, but a Facebook-style algorithm to where your feed will no longer be chronological. Oh, that's annoying. Colin's really pissed off about it. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds completely not useful to me as a person and or as a business. Um, how... How the heck is that supposed to work for a business? That doesn't make any sense. I think it's 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 the same thing that they did with the fan pages, right? They're, yeah. They yeah. want you to pay. And Colin did a really good experiment. Um, I, don't, I can't. I have my plane in air. I have my, I have my phone in airplane mode, so I can't really pull this up to look at the exact numbers. But he put something up on his Instagram last night of... Oh, you know what? I can pull it up on the computer. Um, of his, what happens on Facebook for him, whether he boosts something or he doesn't, and relates directly back to what we were talking about last week with it, um, how it didn't do anything for me with the vlog, paying Facebook ad. Him, drastically different results. Um, I just pulled it up right now. Okay, so his non-boosted post... I don't know how many um, likers he has on his page, but on a non-boosted post, it reaches 1,558 people. Yeah. So I'm assuming he has at least 1,558 people that like his page. Drastically more, I'm sure. Uh, He received six likes and one comment. The boosted post reached 72,411 people. Whoa. So that is a 70% increase. Yeah, 70% increase. And he received 4,516 likes, five comments, and 44 shares. Wait, 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 wait. He got... So what? how much was the non-boosted post? Uh, in which in which category? Um, how, many, how many views did he get with the non-boosted post? 
the fifteen hundred and fifty-eight. No, that's a that's like a that's a way higher percentage than seventy percent, dude. <laughs> no, seven hundred percent, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So, so I, that's that's insane. Wow. And then his likes. I mean, that the drastic difference. That's like a. I don't even know what that increase is from six to four thousand five hundred and sixteen likes. Yeah, that's that's exponential. So I mean, that's that's unbelievable. There is a um, at least on the likes. I will say this. Um, I don't think this is re- responsible for much difference, but there is a difference, mild difference in the two things he posted. In the sense that um, the non-boosted post was a T-shirt mm-hmm. with his um, artwork on it, and the other one was an original piece of artwork. But they were both exactly the same piece. Ah, uh, interesting. Which is the tentacles under the glass jar lid. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't think that uh, the minor differences in what is in the photo is responsible for <laughs> the difference in the likes. So you're looking at, I don't know how much he paid um, to, to boost that for his test. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming he paid a drastic amount because I pay, oh, I shouldn't say drastic, but um, the levels grow in exponentially. I, I spent ten bucks and it went out to about fifteen hundred people, so I'm guessing he might have spent. We'll say like fifty bucks, okay? Now, say you're spending fifty bucks every time you post something on Facebook, and you're posting, I don't know, five times a week. That's uh, two hundred fifty dollars a week. Now, all of a sudden, you if you have to start doing that on Instagram, now all of a sudden you're spending five hundred dollars a week. Is it worth it? Uh, honestly, I think that it's just it's just oversaturation, man. I I I I, I mean, and and that's this may be short sighted of me. Um, I don't think I I I may have a, a an incomplete read on this um, from a practicality standpoint. But like I watch Crystal do the same thing with her businesses, and I think it's not necessarily about the amount of money you spend as it is about how how smart you're targeting um right you know so i think like with crystal for example i mean there, there are certain ads that she's put up where she's spent five bucks and gotten great results and others where she's spent 50 and gotten crap results you know what i mean so most of that came down to targeting um as well as and to some extent the, the quality of the post itself um another example i have of that is for for my own instagram for the golf company um so, you know, I, I typically get, you know, uh, maybe 500 to 1,000 views per video, which, by the way, on Instagram, um, I'm starting to like that more and more uh, when it comes to the views because it shows the reach that your videos are getting. Um, right. I really kind of like to see what that looks like for images. But so, yeah, I usually get between five to 1,500 or five to 1,000, um, 500 to 1,000 views per video. But on this latest one, where I'm I'm doing this weird swing drill, swing drill that that's apparently more impressive than I thought it was. I got eleven thousand views, and those are all organic. Like I didn't pay for a single one of those. Yeah, I do. I, I believe that. I mean, in the long run, what we're all looking for is is genuine traffic, right? The, sure. The truest way to get genuine traffic is organically, always. But the amount of work that it takes to get those things, sometimes you know, like. Some of us don't want to do it, sure. and I, I'm not. I'm not saying that Colin does or Colin doesn't. I think that he's proving a point about the uh, monetization of this whole process because I, I do. Th- I have problems with with the Facebook fan page thing, even though like 
I personally, I don't care um, yeah. because it doesn't affect me in any way. I could care less. But I do think that there's something brutal about the fact that, you know, I will say that he has um, 1,558 uh, fans on his page, right? And he posts something and it only goes out to 12. Yeah. That's, that's, that's messed up because somebody did all of that work getting those people to like that page. And now you're going to try to make them pay for that. Obviously, they're offering this for free. They can charge us for whatever they want. But I do think that there's a sinisterness to that business plan. And to know that Instagram's going to start doing that to people, it's, it's, it's messed up. And I know uh, Colin's point on the post, by the way, I should mention to the listeners is there is a petition, I believe, that people can sign, uh, change.org. Go to change.org for keep Instagram chronological. So anybody wants to check that out. To me, personally, I'm very excited about the Instagram <laughs> algorithm because now <laughs> my the five likes that I get for everything I post will now become zero likes, and then I can just delete the damn app. It's one less thing for me to worry about in my yeah. life. Uh, it goes past the point of usefulness for you. It's just gone now. I just I don't care about it. It doesn't mean... And I have, you know, like, yeah. the only thing I care about is YouTube and this. These are my two main things. I don't care about everything else. Whatever. Um, I will say this. Um, going back to f- another thing we talked about previously, Facebook and me saying Facebook bites, I might have to um, eat my words, man. Uh, Facebook fan pages, still bite. But uh, personal yeah. Facebook pages, wow. Uh, 80 to 90% of my vlog traffic is coming from my personal Facebook page. No kidding. Part of that's responsible to me knowing awesome people, but uh, wow, shocking. Yeah, I would have never guessed. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, I mean it's it's a drastic. By the way, YouTube's statistics or or analytics are brilliant. They're so detailed. Yeah. If you really wanted to go yeah, crazy, yeah. you could. Um, yeah, but I think it's eighty to ninety percent. Of every post, like consistently. So, uh. Wow, that's, that's shocking. I'm eating crow right now. But once again, I do think that when I, a lot of what we were talking about was the Facebook fan page. Um, personal pages. I wonder, I'm wondering though, how long until they, until they start seeing that as an ad revenue? You know, make people pay to boost their personal posts. Yeah, I, I think that. that it's such a slippery slope uh, for a company like Facebook because if you try to over monetize, then you just you end up just losing people in droves. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I think that that there's a certain a, a, a certain buy-in or adoptability you need among um, a strong user base in order to make a tool like that viable for a business. You know what I mean? Like if I'm if if twenty people imagine imagine if someone tried to monetize MySpace like four years ago you know what I mean <laughs> um, it just wouldn't work because there's nobody there anymore you know what I mean it's it's like having the best sale in the world in an empty store you know right so, so I don't know I mean there's I, I think that I think that there's still a use for all, I mean I, I I actually know of quite a few companies that have used Facebook pages well um, or I'm sorry fan pages well. Um, but that's it, it for every one good example. I have four bad examples. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure if it's, if it's just purely a, 
a demographic thing like that particular company that I saw that is, is successful on Facebook has a, a user base that is just on Facebook a lot mm-hmm. or if it's something the way that they're producing content in order to, to make it so that people are continually going back to the page. You know what I mean? I definitely think that you make a, a very valid point there in the sense that um, just because one thing is successful in one place does not mean that it will be successful in or something else will be successful in that same space with the same strategy. Sure. Uh, yeah. An artist on Facebook might struggle a lot more than uh, a golf page or vice versa. Maybe an artist rocks on Facebook because that's what people on Facebook want to see and they don't want to sure. see golf and, yeah, sure, sure, sure. or clothing or anything else. Like, I mean, you're, and, it, and obviously, obviously there's the, the degree of, um, like you said, targeting your audience correctly you know okay i am selling this type of product who buys this type of product okay 40 to 50 year old women in the united states mm-hmm. obviously there's more targeting than that involved but knowing that that's where they are okay well where are 40 to 50 year old women um in the united states what social media do they use and i think that's a that's um a form of targeting that people don't use often enough is to find the right location first. Sure. The two sides of that I see are basically, like if you look at a, a company that, that, that doesn't specifically have a product but focuses on a certain type of product or a certain demographic are usually the ones that, that are successful. Like the one the one that pops to mind is um, Uncrate, uh, which is a company that basically just has really snazzy, cool, futuristic toys for, you know, a certain male demographic between 30 and 50. You know what I mean? Like that page is vastly successful, but I can imagine from the other side of the same equation, like if there was a page that just did specifically like ties, I, I can't really see that that specific of a niche having enough content to maintain the user base over a long period of time. You know right. I mean? Yeah. You think, uh, okay, I'm selling ties. Facebook, maybe, maybe where you want to be is LinkedIn. Yeah. 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 You know? <laughs> or, or one of the most successful, um, one of my one of my friends, one of the most successful versions of that that I've seen. Uh, one of my friends runs a jewelry company out of San Diego, and um, the the her best marketing channel is Pinterest by far, and it's a, it's it's like a ninety ten split between everything else and Pinterest. I feel like like almost yeah. almost anything in that in the product field, you know, like you're selling selling uh, from clothing to clocks to anything should be rocking on Pinterest because I, I'm going to admit it right now. I don't use it very often, but Pinterest is rad. Like the way it's set up. And if that's yeah, what, yeah. If that's the type of stuff you're looking for, there is no better place to find that stuff. It, it, all the other stuff is cut out. You know, there's messaging on there. Nobody uses it as far as I know. So you're just basically looking at a stream yeah. of stuff that you like. Yeah. And, and I think that, uh, I can't imagine why why people don't talk about Pinterest more, to be honest. Well, not only that, I think it's not just a, sure, it's just a stream of stuff that you like, but the greatest thing that I think in Pinterest and, and how I see certain businesses use it is that you can compartmentalize the things that you like. Like when I was experimenting with Pinterest for myself and some of the stuff that I was doing, like I had a section for art, I had, not even art, I had it broken down to like street art, sculpture, um, photography. So I, I had it all broken down into individual compartments. And let's 
say today I just really felt like looking at Scandinavian architecture, I could literally just go to a board that had nothing but Scandinavian architecture and I could fulfill my need for that. And I don't know why no other, no other environment like Facebook, for example, does that. Like, I don't know if it's just because the interface isn't conducive to it or because the platform won't allow for that level of specificity, but I really like that about Pinterest. Yeah, I, I think that um, the one thing that they've nailed is that ability to dial in your feed. I, I think to some degree, uh, people get the same experience with Tumblr. Uh, but I think oh, I, true, yeah. I think part of the reason, it's not necessarily um, the fault of the other apps. It's the way that people view those apps and the way that we do things on there. Like Pinterest, you don't have to, you know, there's not the same obligation to follow everybody that you know. Uh, sure. You don't have to follow anybody you know. It's Pinterest. Nobody cares. There's no communication going on there. So people don't view it the same way. Whereas, you know, like Facebook, you know, you know like a, your best friend sends you a request on Facebook. If you don't accept it, you're an, you're an asshole. Whereas on Pinterest, <laughs> Pinterest, you know, like you both might be on there and not even know each other are on there because, you know, you're busy looking at the stuff you're into. Um, there's not the same social obligation, I think, to a site like that. And I, I would say to a certain degree with Tumblr as well. Isn't, there, isn't, isn't that kind of what the intention was with Instagram originally, though? I mean, sure, you could follow your friends and stuff, but I mean, I, most of the people I follow or who are following me on, on my Instagram aren't friends of mine. I don't know any of these people. You know what I mean? But we share a common interest in common environment. You know what I mean? I definitely think that that was, was the original at least the original way that Instagram was used. But once people started, once the whole selfie phenomenon started, um, that changed everything. Uh, the selfie and the food thing changed everything because then it became a social, a more social medium. And it would, I mean, let's be honest. What did Instagram become? Instagram became the photo feed of Facebook. Like 80 to 90% sure. of the people who Basically. post photos on Facebook are using Instagram to do it. Sure. It's Facebook's photo app. Yeah, over over time I've I've gone to the point where I for me it's either one or the other and never both. You know what I mean? Like if I'm on Instagram a lot, I'm barely on Facebook. And if I'm on Facebook a lot, I'm barely looking at Instagram. Right. I mean there's a there's you know? a f- few rare individuals that um have the ability to like pictures on Instagram and like the same picture when they see it again on Facebook. And those are just very generous people. Most people don't have the patience to do that. Yeah, I I know. I these days I I rarely do. You know what I mean? Unless it's a really really close friend, I I I find myself not doing that very often. So yeah. Something I find interesting too is I think that to some degree that phenomenon that we're talking about also happens on YouTube. And I I, I mean, do you think do you consider YouTube a social media? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think it flip flops. I because I think that there are certain there are certain people on on YouTube whose channels are very interactive. Um, you know, where they're they're commenting all the time, where they're doing you know uh, videos back and forth with other YouTubers and stuff like that. But I think for the most part, it's not. I think it's very anonymous. Um, you know, most of the videos that go viral, for example, um, are videos that that I mean, you don't know the publisher, you don't know the person who, who edited or created that video. You know what I mean? So I think I don't think it's intended to be a social medium in the same way, but I think there are definitely people who have figured out some kind of magic formula to turn it into that. You know what I mean? I almost feel like, in a way, YouTube is the future of television. Sure. sure. It, uh, 
like when we had talked about Anchor before and how um, the idea behind Anchor is essentially open up radio to a um, to the public in a way that it wasn't before. You know, like short it's short form, but people are allowed to voice respond to each other, and it becomes a conversation. I feel like YouTube, in a way, is doing the same thing with with uh, media with with video. You know, it's taking and I, I mean to some degree it always has been, but more so now that I'm in it am I noticing it. Uh, I find myself watching more and more YouTube and less and less television. Sure. Do you and, know anything? Do you know anything about YouTube Red at all? Uh, I just know that it takes away the ads. Okay. Yeah, because I, I I have never touched it, and I have no idea what it's in. I mean, I, I guess it's the premium service, but I'm not sure how you can take a service that's so inherently organic and turn it into a premium service without losing the the organic charm that it had in the first place. You know what I mean? And I'm not sure how the monetization works for the YouTube content creators with Thread because um, all, all revenue that anybody makes on YouTube is through the ads, sure. which I was not aware of before. For some reason, I was always under the assumption that where the ads were and where they showed up in videos was YouTube choosing where those were and not the content creators. Which is why I specifically I only use one type of ad, and I only use the ad at the beginning of a video that you can skip after three seconds, because it's the least obtrusive. But you know, there's people out there that put ads in the middle of their video, pop up in the middle of their video. They they put the ad where you're forced to watch the whole thing. Yeah, and those people are just I don't I can't imagine that they're making money. But I I, I don't see how. When you're relying on those things to make the money, does I'm wondering if YouTube Red compensates you. I know that um, they did a similar thing when they introduced, um, not they, but Amazon did a similar thing when they introduced Amazon Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of the independent uh, authors that had books um, for sale through the Kindle, if they chose to opt into the Amazon Unlimited program, there was obviously the chance of more exposure. More people would find them. More people would give their book a chance because uh, it was included in their $10 a month. You know, so you read whatever you want for $10 a month. Uh, Depending, I can't can't remember the specific details. I believe it was after a certain person read a certain percentage of your book, then you were compensated for that as if they bought it. Oh, gotcha. Which is which is cool, um, but it's also a little weird. I think that people freaked out a bit because they couldn't measure their <laughs> their sales in the same way, and I haven't heard the same. I haven't heard anybody complaining about red. So well, I, I guess I guess from that perspective, it, it turns it from a a per view basis to to a subscription almost. You know what I mean? Right. Like, so like there's a there's a certain limit you have to to a threshold you have to cross before it becomes profitable. Exactly. Uh, that makes sense. Which, I mean, and for all of those out there that um, wonder about how how much money people make uh, using YouTube, let's put it this way. If you're not getting millions of views, you're not making money. Uh, I think it, it takes, uh, is it 1,500 or 15,000? I think it's 15,000 views to make a dollar. Yeah, I think uh, I, it's, it's tough to gauge because... It's a sliding scale. Um, in one of the previous um, businesses I worked for, it was a photography blog. 
and uh, we used to, you know, we used to get between ten to twenty thousand views per video. And in some cases, because um, we did a few um, interviews with some famous photographers like Annie Leibovitz and um, you know Ansel Adams' son uh, about the Ansel Adams Foundation and stuff, and some of those some of those got up to like you know the hundred and fifty two hundred thousand mark, and we barely saw any money at all. <laughs> Like I think, I think the the most profitable profitable video we ever had made us like two hundred and eighty dollars, and it had like a hundred and ninety thousand views or something like that. Well, I just typed it in to to take a look. <laughs> Gotta love there's an, an ad that pops up at the top at the of the Google search. It says, "How many views does it take to make money?" Right, and then there's this little paragraph, and the guy says, "This is how I'm able to make a dollar per twenty five views." I'm like, oh. That sounds like something nobody should do. That is a scam. Yeah, that's that's all kinds of bad. Oh, it's, it's either a scam or this guy is just tacking so many ads into yeah. his into his videos that that he's just being an asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's worth it. Well, I think the the only real way to make money um, for a content provider on on YouTube if you're just an individual. Um, is to get sponsored by a company. Like I know there's, there's, I forget his name. There's a surfer guy who does that for GoPro, and because he produces content for GoPro, GoPro pays him for his views. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's a very direct one-to-one relationship versus what we're talking about, which is more ad revenue. You know right. I mean? Yeah. So I think, that, so I think it's, it's all about trying. If you're, if you really want to monetize in a place like YouTube, then I think it's about creating partnerships more than it is about getting views. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that. Well, I think part of the reason that um, that I brought up the monetization, obviously, is I'm not worried about me making money on my YouTube. But I do think going forward, if YouTube is going to take take at least part of the place in television, as we're talking about, there needs to be a better way for people to make money when they do it, and it, it can't be tied to the same system that um, network television is, because then it ends up just being networks except they're not networks you know like there you just have these companies that become like networks which i've heard that uh people are afraid that youtube is about to move in that direction not on any of their company choices but just brands are are exploding onto youtube and they're gonna smother all the small guys just by producing higher quality content um sure but I, i i think that there's i mean for example one of my current, I guess you could say, one of my current crushes is this uh, girl named Grace Helbig, and she's a YouTube comedian, and she's quirky, she's um, strange, um, kind of everything awesome, and I can't imagine that in the quote-unquote normal mainstream media that she would be able to do a week, even a weekly show, because mm-hmm. she's quirky enough that maybe uh, she doesn't have enough mainstream appeal. People wouldn't dump money into her. But she's pretty damn successful on YouTube and she's able to make money. I don't think I wouldn't say that uh, it's her sole source of income. But I do think that that's a huge thing to be able to open those doors up to those kinds of people. Yeah, and I honestly think from from and I don't know how true this is because I, in, in almost every historical example I can think of, it's, it's not been true. So I'm, I have a feeling I'm totally wrong in this. Um, but I, I think like with YouTube, it's kind of, there's, there's kind of a, a, a sense of, I think it's YouTube and its users has a sense of self-awareness that I think is unique among 
um, certain websites. And I think it's kind of like Reddit in that sense, in that if you start getting too corporate, then YouTube will just backlash on you. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I think that there's there's a strong sense of that, at least for now. And I don't know if it'll always stay this way. Like the only successful example I can think of that that's still that's still maintaining its sense of quote unquote integrity is um, Reddit. You know what I mean? Like if you go too corporate on Reddit, people will destroy you. <laughs> right. I mean, and I think that there's a certain sense of that with YouTube too, where people people are almost protective of it as as a medium a medium of of, of artistic expression and free speech. So I think that there's it kind of protects itself. Like one of my favorite YouTubers is um, this this Scandinavian uh, girl by the name of Simone Getz, and she just builds these ridiculous robots, um, nice. and they're hilarious. Like she has a, a an alarm clock robot that's basically an alarm clock hooked up to a giant rubber hand, and anytime it goes off, it just smacks you in the face. Um, oh, I think I saw thumbnail of that in the past two days. That's yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, she's huge now. Um, like I think her her alarm clock machine got something like eight hundred and fifty thousand views or something ridiculous like that. I might be totally wrong on that too, but but she she's a good example of, of of a person who couldn't really produce content anywhere other than YouTube, and it's very DIY, it's very grassroots, and it's very bootstrappy. And so I think because of that, because of what YouTube's been to people like her and to most of the other videos that you find on YouTube, you don't see huge production value, you don't see anything. Um, that's 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 too corporate or too overdone, and I think that YouTube, at least for now, has a way of self-correcting itself with that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I feel like um, I guess management would be the way to say it. I don't know. Whoever runs YouTube, whatever word you want to use for that, the corporate structure of YouTube is very, very seems to be, in my experience, very focused on their creative community. Sure. And. Um, I know that they regularly have meetings with, um, obviously, people like Grace Helbig and Casey Neistat, people that have a lot of heat on their account, and uh-huh. finding out ways. Hey, what can we do to make this experience better? What, what kind of what kind of thing do you need? Okay, you need a button like that. Okay, we'll we'll see if we can work that in. You know, like I was thinking the other day, like what would be brilliant of YouTube right now would be to steal Snapchat snap code. You know, you have those little yellow squares with the ghosts and people's faces in it. All those little dots around in the yellow part make up a QR code so that you scan it with a uh, Snapchat app. You just tap on it and boom, you've added that person to your Snapchat. Imagine if you could do that with YouTube channels. Uh, that's true. That makes sense. Because there is a lot involved with subscribing to a YouTube channel. You know, it's like you got to go to their site. I mean, not a lot as in it's oppressive, but comparatively, man, that pre- that in some way probably prevents the ease with which people subscribe. Whereas if you had something like that, boom, with the, scan it with the YouTube app, add it to your subscribers. Well, I think part of the reason why that is the way that it is is because, um, you know, with Snapchat, it's device specific. Like you're going to use that on a mobile device. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to YouTube, where you could be on a desktop, a laptop, a tablet, a phone, right. or any number of those things on any given day. So, I mean, I, and I, I, I was thinking about that the other day too. Like for for a site like YouTube, how how thorough they have to be from a design perspective and from a you know a functionality perspective in order to make sure that they're satisfying the needs for all of their their customers on in all of those various devices. You know what I mean? Right, and without offering the you know. Uh, customization where it's like oh your yeah. page 
Like, I think that's where MySpace fell apart. Mm-hmm. They offered so much customization that there was no unity and no structure to the site. And Facebook kind of. Yeah, and, and that's the one thing with, with YouTube is that there's an aesthetic cohesion that, that, that makes it so that, I mean, and not only that, but it had to be good enough that people adopted it without getting too pissed off and leaving it. You know what I mean? And I think that, that, I mean, don't get me wrong. Every single time YouTube modifies its interface or, 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 or tweaks its algorithm, like people freak out for a little bit. Right. But because they've done such a good job of thinking ahead, I mean, and they don't always get it right. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's obviously examples of, of things that they've done throughout their, their historical, um, you know, path through the, or their evolution that have been wrong. But for the most part, they hit the mark. And I think that, that because they've kept their interface so simple and because they've, they've, they've done what you're talking about, which is removing the illusion of choice. You know what I mean? Um, taking, taking all of those, those, like MySpace just became a, a madhouse, you know, like it just became this, 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 basically a zoo where where anyone could do whatever they wanted with their interface and you know I, i'm sure you've had this experience like going to a person's myspace page and seeing some kind of bright pink animated gif as their background it was just so <laughs> obnoxious to look at that you just you just couldn't do it you know what i mean yeah i think that um youtube the evolution of youtube has kind of blown my mind and it used to be a really really ugly site and just even just the interface alone I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and I'm like, it's pretty sexy. Yeah, and it's pretty simple. There's not a lot to it. Yeah, I mean, they got they've got some great design going on just in that alone. So I think anybody that's complaining and is essentially they're nitpicking. Yeah, exactly. And, which is fine, you know. You can nitpick about whatever you want, but let's all be grown ups. Yeah, like I mean, with your your vlogs, a good example actually. I, I think the last three episodes of your vlog that I've watched. I've watched each of them on a different device, and I can't recall the experiences being different at all. You know what yeah. I mean? And I, I think there's, there's a magic to that. Like, there's, there's definitely a very strong intelligence behind that design. You know what I mean? And I think uh, that consistency. And this, this sounds mean, but in the way, it's it's uh, makes it uh, hard to remember that they're owned by Google. Yeah, true. <laughs> not that not that Google's like completely sloppy, but I mean like. Comparatively, YouTube just outrocks everything that Google does, and maybe everything that Apple does too. I mean, YouTube is just solid. Yeah, I mean, and you talk about the amount of traffic and the amount of of people that they're dealing with and the, the things that are going on there, and I don't really see many problems happening, which is a testament when when a company can make something, they make a site that has that much traffic, and they become invisible. Mm-hmm. They've hit a magic point, or it's yeah. like you've done something that's magic. Um, we don't, you know, I don't think people sit and do what we're doing right now. Talk about the YouTube interface because it's invisible. They don't think yeah. about it at all. They do still talk about Apple. They do still talk about Google. They do still talk about Android because those things aren't at the level that YouTube's at right now. And typically, whenever we have conversations about you know Google or Apple. Um, especially the last couple of weeks, with the exception of you talking about Tim Cook standing up for the rights of all humanity, um, it's usually in a negative light. You know, like I think about all of these rumors that are, are floating around the new MacBook Pro. I mean, because I I, re- I recently just bought a PC just because it's more cost effective for what I do and I don't need to do any complex editing anytime soon or anything like that. But, um, you know, the conversation now is like what what they're going to change. And I think that, I, you know, like the new 
gummy keyboard or whatever it was like that that was bugging people you know what i mean people going uh, crazy about that that's so yeah it's and I don't really understand the gripe. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I like my clicky keyboards, but I I've adapted to every keyboard I've ever used. You know what I mean? Yeah, I but don't I, care at all. Yeah, I don't I don't really care that much either. But I think the the, the it, it it speaks to a different um like where I was going with that was I think that YouTube only changes when they really really need to. You know right. what I mean? Whenever there's there's a core functionality that needs to be modified to improve the user experience, versus companies like Google and and Apple who have a tendency to just change things for the sake of them. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, they have to. It is said, excuse me, I'm yawning. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. There's a difference between um, YouTube is, it's a place, not a product. Yeah. Whereas um, Google are, they're, they're creating products. I mean, technically YouTube is one of their products, but um, they don't need to, hey, here's, you know, YouTube uh, version 7.5. Yeah, I don't know what version is on. Nobody knows what version on. It's very different. Um, so you're definitely right there. Well, I, it goes back to what we've talked about in the past. Like, I mean, this is from the very first podcast. I think that 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 YouTube is the greatest example of of the company, the type of company that you were describing, and that it just always works, dude. Like any any, regardless of what device you're on, regardless of of what internet connections be. I mean, obviously you have to have some kind of connection. But as long as you have a reasonably fast internet connection, regardless of what device you're on, even if the device itself physically sucks, YouTube works. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, which is, I mean, I think we, sometimes we, we live in this bubble where we don't realize how amazing the things around us are. The fact that it's streaming video to us wherever we are and relatively wonderful quality. I mean, like, I don't have any complaints on quality. Somebody can. It depends on your connection. Sure. but. Uh, you know, like sometimes I look at my vlogs on my phone and I'm like, it kind of looks better, smaller. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the, then you think about Twitter. Uh, 90% of everything that's on Twitter is text based, which is, requires far less bandwidth. Yeah. And Twitter seems, uh, it's been a while, but Twitter seemed to crash all the time back in the day. Like, yeah. what, the, what the hell was going on there comparatively? It's like, we're talking about a uh, marveling, a, a programming and an engineering marvel. Yeah. And I think the only company that comes even close to them in, in just pure functionality is just Netflix. I mean, Netflix is the same thing. Like, I've, I've watched Netflix on, on long drives. You know what right. I mean? Um, not while I'm driving, of course, because I don't want to die. But, you know, I, I, I think that, that the, the level of... And, and you're so right. Like, this is the reason why we never have conversations about youtube um and how it works or how it doesn't work because it's 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 just the ghost in the machine you know anytime you could be sitting there and complaining about a, a new apple device but guess where you're going to go to watch a video on that the latest feature that pisses you off youtube <laughs> you know right and, and it I, just works so, i mean it's fascinating to me that's the that's the beauty of it too is you, you know you have you have uh, large companies putting things on YouTube. You have, you know, late night with the. Not, it's not called late night anymore. It's night show <laughs> with, with Jimmy Kimmel. No, not Jimmy yeah. Kimmel. Damn it. Yeah. Jimmy uh, Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. I'm all over the place. <laughs> you, you've got yeah. him and John Oliver um, putting, you know, HBO and John Oliver putting stuff up on YouTube. And then you've got the guy down the street that's using, like, the camera on a flip phone from like 1998 and you're in they're putting stuff up too and it's open to everybody and that's 
pretty rad. Yeah, I mean, the guy down the street might get more views on his video than, than Jamie Oliver's, you know what I mean? Yep. I, I think one of the, the, the fascinating things about YouTube is that it's one of the few places left in, in, in the digital world or just the world in general where there's a level playing field, you know? Whether you're, whether you're, uh, Tesla and going to spend $10 million on a, a, a commercial or, or you're, you're some random kid on a skateboard with a flip phone. Like you have an equally high chance of getting a large number of views of your contents just compelling, you know? Right. And I think that the, in some way we can go back to the Instagram thing with this. I don't think anybody ever complains about YouTube having an, an algorithm and they do. They have an algorithm. When you go to your homepage, when you go to that recommended thing, that's an algorithm. The reason nobody complains about sure. it is probably because nobody uses it. We just literally hunt for yeah. things exactly what we want until we find it, or we go directly to the person that we're subscribing to and watch their most recent update. At least that's how I use it. Sure. You know, I get to the end of the day yeah. on the on the iPhone app. I usually end up watching it on the iPhone app, even though I have it on Apple TV. Um, cause there's just a little head for you know, like the 10 people I'm subscribed to and it'll tell me how many, you know, say like three next to Casey Neistat, but like, okay, I haven't watched his last three vlogs. Boom. Play. And I just watched those three and it's, it's great. Um, you know, you know, actually lately I've been using that, that front page a lot more, uh, like over the last couple of months. Um, and watching videos that, that YouTube is picking for me, and it actually does a really good job of it. It does, actually. It does better than Netflix, <laughs> like we talked about before. Yeah. You know, like I was just looking at um, my Netflix recommendations yesterday. I'm like, 80%, I'm never going to watch this. I mean, Chloe Deschanel's hot, but I'm never going to watch her sitcom. Never. I have no interest yeah, yeah, in yeah. that. But it's yeah. recommended to me. By the way, um, Go on a small tangent on Netflix. Maybe you can solve a mystery to me that I think is hilarious. Popular on Netflix is a category, and trending on Netflix is also a category. What minor mm. esoteric definition makes those different? Well, I, from a web perspective, I remember when we were dealing with websites, the difference was trending is more current or urgent, and popular is historical. Hmm. So that was the only difference that I, for example, like if, if something got 50,000 views in the last hour versus 250,000 views over the last year, you know what I mean? Mm, that makes, that makes a, a so, bit of difference there. So, so that, that, that for me, when we were dealing with website analytics was, was how we dealt with it. Trending was much more like, okay, so how many people viewed this in the last three days versus how many people have viewed it in total over the last four years, you know? That makes a lot of sense. I was looking at that. I'm like, uh, and the sad thing is, it's like 80%, at least as far as Netflix did it, like 80% of the things in each category were the same. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> You're watching like Friends or something, then it's probably going to be in both, you know? Right. Or you scroll down and it says, you know, new releases and uh, new releases. And what's the other one? New something. It's like newly added. That's it. New releases and newly added. Uh, new Sometimes they're the same thing. Uh, hey, what are you reading right now? Anything interesting? Um, I am reading a book called The Blueprint to Death. I don't remember. It. I don't have it with me. Um, I should I should remember to do those things. Like I think for the next podcast, I I was actually thinking about doing this yesterday, but like pulling up 
the three artists that I'm listening to, the book that I'm reading, and the movie that I'm currently watching. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I, I think we, sh- we should probably include that for the next podcast. Um, a blueprint for the afterlife. That's what it's called. Uh, and I'm just barely into it thus far. Um, but it was, it was, it was based off another book. Um, that our friend Emily um, had suggested to us, and I forget the name of that one too. So I'm very ill prepared for that question. <laughs> but I, I but what I definitely about? will have, I will have both of those things for next week. Um, okay. The, it, it's called the sum of something or other, and it, it was about it's analyzing death in a very different way. Um, I don't know why, but the last couple of weeks I've been thinking about my, my mortality a lot, and it's maybe because I'm. I'm getting up to, to 40 and, and, and thinking about dying. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I definitely will include those. I think that's an entire conversation in and of itself. Um, but, yeah, I will, I will throw those uh, into the next podcast. I've got a whole bunch of things to ask you about that, too. Because yeah, okay. we're both at that age where many, many things are changing in both of our lives and many different choices um, are, are coming upon us. So I, it's, that's an interesting conversation. That's definitely something I would like to... Uh, steer us into with our future podcasts is getting into what we're reading and listening to more often because I think at a certain point we're gonna yeah. get we're gonna hit a block with with our complaints about technology. There's more children playing <laughs> more more children playing on my lawn. They love my lawn. I don't know well, what what are you listen, what are you listening to these days? I'm always curious as to what music's spinning around. <laughs> Today you're going to get the most peculiar answer that you were not expecting too, um, which may require a bit of explanation, so that I don't look like a total strange person. Uh, I've been listening to Native American chant music. Whoa, that's a weird one. Yeah. Um, so basically, there's a application on the iPhone called Omvana. Omvana is a guided meditation app, you know, um, and I am not at the, I, like I said earlier with the Strides app, I'm trying to remind myself to meditate every day. Um, I am not at the point where I can meditate by myself in silence. So I need a guide. I need a guided meditation. I need something to make me sit there for 15 minutes or, you know, whatever, however long I choose. And the way the Omvana application works, which I actually recommend, it's very cool. Um, you have audio tracks, um, voice tracks, I should say, you know, mm-hmm. with the guided meditation of, or some of them are just talks, not even guided meditation. Um, you go into the mixer and you have that. And then in the, the level above that, there's, you swap through backing music tracks. And then, oh. and within the mixer, you can pick the levels. So he's like, I want the music really high and the voice a little bit low or vice versa. Uh, and I got a pack. I don't remember if it came with the app for free or whatever, but there was an app of like three different things of like Native American, like flute music. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. And then I put one of them on and I'm like, this is gorgeous. I love this. This is beautiful music. And I had a really strange connection with it. Like it just. And these are like these loops of these things. These aren't full songs. These are like two minute loops of like repetitious little riffs. And, you know, because it's just background music. Sure. I found myself because a lot of these meditations, you know, they'll end. Uh, I've been doing a lot of sleep meditations because I'm doing it before bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of them will end with something along the lines of now that you're relaxed, listen to the music until you feel comfortable enough to go to sleep or whatever. And I'll find myself like I'm just sitting there like 
listening the loop of this flute. Like, this is so cool, and I'm listening to it way longer than you should. <laughs> so I found myself going into the Apple Music um, and just searching for Native American music, and then today I found this Native American chant thing, and it's wild, man. It's so cool. It's like drums, uh, a lot of drums, obviously, but then there's like, I, I can't even describe it, but the singing is just amazing. And these chants, like, it's almost like, I'm like, dude, this is more metal than metal. <laughs> it's just so cool. So that's what I'm listening to right now. Nice. <laughs> you did not expect that. No, I did not. I, I, I kind of went in a, a, a weird line like you on that. You, you, you don't, have you seen that show, How It's Made? Uh, is that the, is that made by How Stuff Works? Uh, yeah, it, I'm sorry. It's how stuff works. I'm sorry. That's that's the show I'm thinking of. Um, but it 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 kind of it was it was a a, a bastardization of the the two ideas. Or, I mean, one of the conversations that we had, um, as as well as with that that show, which is um, um, our our mutual hatred for um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say I hate them. I mean, I don't I don't hate them. They're they're cool, I guess. And you know, Flea's a genius. Anthony Hughes is tone deaf, but whatever. But <laughs> It came down to um, this one particular, the only, the only Chili Pepper song that I liked to the degree that I did, which is a song um, called "Breaking the Girl." Um, and there's one particular chunk of that song where I was always curious as to what was making the sounds in that song, um, and so I, I kind of reverse engineered it and looked at a bunch of videos and eventually found the making of of that particular song, and it's. All of the Chili Peppers sitting around smacking weights together to produce this really interesting drum sound, um, and it, it made me think of your whole Native American or it, your Native American thing made me think of that. Um, and I was on this kick for a while about looking for, you know, the origins to a lot of these weird noises that I or sounds that I heard in songs that didn't sound like instruments. So, have you ever uh, read those thirty-three and a half books? No, have not. They're these little like pocket-sized books, and each one of them is about an album. It's about one album. It's like the any anybody that likes music or loves music and is into the type of stuff you're talking about should be reading these books. I mean, they are they have hundreds of them now, but when they started out, it was just you know like I have one. Um, so thirty three and a third, yeah. I have one that was um, Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures, and it just goes down, literally goes down, it drills down into every thing that was going on when they made the album everything that goes into every single song and it's I mean like here I'll give you just a list of them in order that they made them I'm not going to read them all because there's hundreds I'm just going to give you 20 the first 20 that they made Dusty in Memphis by Dusty Springfield Forever Changes by Love Harvest by Neil Young Uh, Village Green Preservation Society by The Kinks Media's Murder by The Smiths Piper at the Gates of Dawn by Pink Floyd. Abba Gold. Abba. Electric Ladyland, the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Unknown Pleasures, Joy Division. Sign of the Times, Prince. Velvet Underground and Nico, the Velvet Underground. Let It Be, the Beatles. Live at the Apollo, James Brown. Aqualung, Jethro Tull. OK Computer, Radiohead. Let It Be, the Replacements. Led Zeppelin 4, Led Zeppelin. Exile on Main Street, the Rolling Stones. Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys. Ramones, Ramones. So pretty much 20 of the greatest albums ever made. Holy cow. And it goes into that kind of detail. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Wow. 
Are they just little? Uh, are they just little books? Or are they part of the? Se- I'm assuming they're part of the series. That, that's they're you know, they're little pocket books published that way. They look like little poetry books, basically. Um, according to this, they are at 110 right now. The last one that they just did was "Bitches Brew" by Miles Davis. Um, between that and uh, behind, not behind the music, uh, classic albums that show that VH1 used to do, you will find some really oh, interesting yeah, yeah. stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Like for example, what you reminded me of with the Red Hot Chili Peppers is um, I don't remember which rhythmic song it is, but uh, they were recording something, and at the time there was an instrument called like a clamp trap. Which made a specific kind of like I think I imagine it's like the hi hat closing type sound, um, but they didn't have yeah. one of those and they were expensive, so they reproduced the sound on their album by taking picture frames and smacking them against the wall. Or um, <laughs> I can't remember which Judas Priest song, but there's one Judas Priest song. It might be Breaking the Law. I don't remember where there's this massive drum sound and everybody's like, "How do you get that drum sound?" It was literally them in the studio with a drawer full of silverware bouncing it up and down. And it just wow. gave it a metallic sound that nothing else could. So, yeah, check out those books. You'll you'll love them. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by that. Like, I mean, you know, it, it, I mean, we know quite a few musicians. I mean, we're kind of both lazy musicians ourselves. But I wonder how, you know, what, what impulse drives a person to say, you know what, I'm going to take this wooden spoon and smack this tripod and see how it sounds. You know what I mean? Like, or, or I'm going to take this, 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 this chainsaw and run it across the frets of my guitar to see what kind of noise it's going to produce. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like there's, there's a, there's a certain genius. Uh, or I don't even know if it's genius. I think it's, I think it's more the, the, the mentality of the sandbox, you know, where kids are just being allowed to be kids again. And I think that, that that sense of imagination or creativity comes from letting go of, of, of all of those things that you hold to be like, I need to play my guitar this way or I need to play my drums this certain way. Maybe it just comes down to, you know, I need a certain sound um, or I need a certain feeling. And the only way I'm going to do that is to find it somehow in the universe with my creativity, you know? Right, exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's an openness, I think, is what it is. At, at its core, it's, yeah. a, it's an openness to fail. Uh to quote uh, Samuel Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. <laughs>